This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Now, after all that intensity, I think it's time for a bit of art and a bit of reflection. And this week, I have a really interesting book for you. The Letters of French Artist Paul Cézanne by Alex Denshiff have just been published by Thames and Hudson. And they're absolutely incredible. And it's all in there. Romance, hope, disappointment, loss, betrayal, you name it, you get it in the letters. And what I really enjoyed about them the most was they reveal an extraordinary, yet unbelievably fragile man. Well, I really enjoyed my chat with Alex Danchev, who edited and translated the letters of Paul Cézanne. We got on to the topic of privacy. And we discussed just how revealing letters can be. Letters can be very revealing. And I think that Cézanne's are chiefly that he wrote so much and so richly. And Alex, there's a real intimacy in how Cézanne writes to his friend of over 50 years, the writer Zola. Yes, I think you're right. There is an intimacy. I think that probably they were as close as two major artists have been in the modern period. And we can sense some of that, I think, in how he writes and also how Zola replies. As you will have seen, there are some bits of uh, Zola's letters also in the book. And they needed each other quite desperately, whether it was to intellectually bounce ideas, for approval, for general stuff. They were very, very close. Yes. They grew up together. They went to school together in in Aix-en-Provence. And so they were together almost every day for for many years. And then when Zola left school, he moved to Paris, whereas Cézanne remained at that time in Aix. So that really starts the correspondence when they're about, what, 19. And their separation, the enforced separation, comes as a real blow to them. And that's what leads them into this extraordinarily intimate correspondence. So what I was very interested to read about through the letters was that Paul Cézanne was quite a a classic scholar. Yes, that's right. When he was at school, he carried off prizes for every subject, I think, except painting and drawing, which is a rather nice reflection on the difficulties he had as an artist, I suppose. And he was outstanding at Latin and Greek. He read Latin and Greek in the original all his life, uh, translated Virgil in his spare time. And I think these authors, Virgil, Lucretius, Ovid, all the classics, really helped him to live his life. And he was also quite interested in Baudelaire. Yes, Baudelaire. He's said to have taken a, a volume of Baudelaire's poem, the famous or notorious Fleur du Mal, flowers of evil with him on his painting expeditions. And people said that he knew most of that book, most of Baudelaire's poems, by heart. 
And what's interesting about the correspondences is that they reveal a very emotional, a very human, a very ordinary and extraordinary man. Certainly how Suzanne has been judged. He's been judged as this eccentric, but he has all the fragilities of all of us. And that's what's so remarkable and that's what makes the letters so beautiful to read. Can we talk a bit about the letters and particularly some of the more perplexing ones? Yes, I think you've put it well. I think he, he was human all too human, if you like. He, he was plainly extraordinary and yet he suffered as we all do. And that comes through very movingly in the letters. And he openly acknowledges through the letters when he's feeling very down. And he acknowledges that he may be, you know, not just in sombre form, but maybe depressed. Yes, I think that there are moments when he was close to something like depression. And he, he managed somehow to work through that. And perhaps one of the ways in which he worked through it was indeed to talk about it with his closest friend, Zola, and, and with his other friends, in fact. They used to joke that one of the young Cezanne's favourite expressions was, the sky of the future looks very black for me. Uh, and that became a kind of uh, refrain that they would all use when they were helping him out of his darker mood. I think one of the striking things about Cezanne is that he managed all his life, to keep going. He himself remarks that what's true of all the great artists is that they keep working. And Cézanne managed somehow to do that. And how do you think he coped with being so misunderstood by the general public? It's, it comes across in the letters that he's aware how, how much he's distrusted by the artistic community at times. He's aware of the criticisms. He's aware of his own personal failings as well as a person. And how do you think that rested with him? Like the yes. letters show a very complex emotional character. They do. Um, and I think that's a very good question. He realised very well how... He was misunderstood or derided or insulted. And he had a good deal of that throughout his life. One of the very interesting things that also emerges in the letters, by the way, is that Cézanne was truly a legend in his own lifetime, in the sense that people began to write books about him where he would appear as a character in a novel. And all of these Cézanne-like characters tended to come to a bad end. They'd go mad. They'd be found wandering around the Louvre. Even worse things would happen to them. They might commit suicide. All of this he was well aware of. He read all the books. He read about these Cezanne characters. How did he cope? Well, I think he was a very sophisticated intellect. This is probably the most intelligent major painter of his generation. And I think he realized well enough that there was a kind of, what, a kind of division between the, the image and the man. He writes in one letter that's in the book to an acquaintance in Aix, and he says that he hopes that this man will be able to tell the difference between his Cezanne small personality as an impressionist painter and the man. So Cézanne himself is drawing a distinction between his public image, if you like, his image as a painter, and himself, the real man. So I think perhaps that's 
how he managed to survive. It seems by some of the letters that maybe he is just one step ahead of everyone in some way. He was truly sophisticated, almost too intelligent for his own good in order to actually work the system. Like it was very clear that, you know, Monet and Gauguin and other contemporaries were clearly working the system. But he didn't resort to some of the kind of the levels and, you know, ways that they went about things. And as such, he possibly was his own worst enemy in one way. But he was so sharp in another way that it's a very very extraordinary ground to be living on. Yes, that's a good way of putting it, I think. I think he did, in some ways, perform Cézanne. So, for example, there's a famous story about when he went to Manet's favourite café to meet the the master Manet. And he, he went in and he shook hands all around. And when he got to Manet himself, he said loud enough for everyone to hear. I won't shake your hand, Monsieur Manet. I haven't washed for a week. And that, I think, was a performance not to be taken literally and evidence of Cézanne playing up to the kind of image that many people had of him. But some people took that straight. But in another way, he kept himself to himself. He wasn't often seen in Paris cafes. He moved between Paris and Aix. People didn't know where he was. I think he liked that elusiveness, and he liked to guard his privacy. That was very important to him, I think. But he was truly an original, so he was probably very conscious of being copied. Yes, indeed, he was. And I think he had a, a profound sense of the, the project that he had in mind. This is a man who wanted to paint as no one had ever painted before who really wanted to show us a new world by means of painting, and who, after all, succeeded in that in some respects. And so I think he was conscious of pursuing this tremendous goal. These are very high stakes, and part of the issue for him was whether he could succeed, of course. And I think towards the end of his life, he comes to feel that perhaps he has managed to do something of that sort. I think towards the end, he did feel that he was the greatest painter of his generation. And that was Alex Danchev talking to me about his new book, The Letters of Paul Cezanne. Now, I have a little bit of fate and coincidence for you now. When I bumped into Colm Tobin at the Redline Books Festival, we got on to the topic of art. And as it happens, the two of us were both reading The Letters of Paul Cezanne. I have to say it was a bit of a lucky break for me. I got more time with Colm than I expected. And you know what I found very interesting? When I was talking to Colm about the letters, I began to realise that they were not only very revealing, about the artist Paul Cezanne, but also how they were read by his reader, Colm Tobin. But before we got on to the letters, I asked Colm how important is silence to his writing? I think that what you do sometimes when you're writing is you don't just break silence, but you maintain it. In other words, you're playing with undertone as much as tone, so that underneath what's being said, the reader realises there's something else being felt. And I think the novel... I think uniquely really can handle this idea that somebody can be thinking one thing and saying another and feeling one thing and deciding not to release the feeling but to pretend and the reader can actually see both which you can't really do in drama or or at least you can't do as easily and you can't really do in film as easily so it, it is a unique form in that sense. And how intense is it for you writing? Well I think you have to feel what the characters are feeling 
it isn't just a question of writing it down. You have to feel it first and then convey it. So um, therefore you have to concentrate. You know, you can't just write. You actually have to do the other thing as well. So you're processing as you're writing? You're entering into the spirit of somebody else and then attempting to tell a story as well so that you're chopping, cutting. You know, your main job in a way is to hold the reader's attention so that you're using rhythm for that purpose, but you're also not telling too much, not going into too much detail, then giving a detail that is significant. So you're constantly judging, making judgments, making further judgments. It's a question of tact sometimes, and you're almost reading yourself to be sure about it. But the first thing you have to do, I think, is understand the character, what they would do, what they would say, what they would feel. And your new book, The Testament of Mary, is a very profound book and it's a very moving read. Can I ask you, what have you learned by writing The Testament of Mary and how have you got to know the character of Mary? I don't think you learn anything necessarily because you are manipulating. You know, it's it's not necessarily a cynical exercise, but nonetheless, you are controlling a great deal. And um, so that it's, it's simply a form of work, actually, in the, in the same way as anyone involved in, say, if you're behind a counter in a supermarket, have to do the same thing with the checkout as, as I have to do with, with my book. Um, so I'm not sure I learned anything at all from it, actually. Now, the character of Mary is a very complex one. She's very isolated in some ways, yet she is also, from a reader's perspective, a very accessible character. Well, what I was working with, I suppose, was the idea of voice that is written in the first person singular. So the illusion created is that she speaks and the illusion created also is that she doesn't have much time so the speaking is done in a way which is immediate and um, that so, so there's a sort of um, staccato tone where you realise that she's under certain pressures she's, she's, she's traumatised in other words all you have to do is think about it 10 or 20 years after the crucifixion she's unlikely to have recovered from it and it's fresh for her as though it happened yesterday but that there are so many other things that happened she hasn't processed also and so the novel is an attempt to capture that sort of voice wounded, strung out and see where where it would take the reader. And it's taken different readers into different interpretations, different planes altogether. What has been the reaction in Ireland and overseas to you using the character of the Blessed Virgin Mary and to make us look at ourselves and to make us look very objectively at life and the judgments that we make in life and as you said the traumas. Well I've just sold the rights for example in Croatia. I still haven't sold them in Poland, which is interesting. But in Croatia I have, which which is a very Catholic country with a huge history of Marian devotion. So so it, it just depends on the place. It, in, the, in the United States, when it was put on a, in the theatre, there was anger and there were protests. In Ireland, everybody just understands very well that books really have a place in the society and that writers are allowed to really whatever they like within reason and similarly in the theatre so that um, there was no trouble in Ireland there's been no trouble anywhere else and the trouble in the United States was I got some emails and I got some um, letters there there were I think two protests outside the theatre it wasn't very great Now Colm I know you're extraordinarily interested in art can you talk to me a little bit about this? Well I've been reading the letters of Cezanne which had just come out in this new edition. And um, he was terribly interesting in that he went his own way. And his work certainly wasn't fashionable. He had a wonderful eye and he had a way of seeing things which was very special. His work now hangs in museums and seems an ordinary part of our great tradition of Western art. But at the time he was working, it didn't seem like that. It seemed too straight. The, the brush strokes themselves seemed too apparent too easy to see and the overall picture seemed to be lost by the sort of way in which the brushstrokes were made. He often also didn't finish pictures or if he did a portrait the face would not be fully clear. The letters make clear how independent he was, how ready he was to disappear into his work, especially the later letters where he's old and he's sick and he just is talking about 
getting a carriage to a river, sitting by a river and working from nature. But he wasn't just interested in nature, he was interested in how he could use nature pictorially. And um, he certainly was interested in some of his predecessors, in Delacroix in, or in Rubens. But some of his contemporaries he also admired a bit, and um, others not so much. But the interesting about him was, while everything was happening in Paris, he stayed in Provence. The light interested him. bad day for him would be a day when it rained, when he wouldn't be able to go out into the open air, because he liked working from the thing itself, rather than being in the studio. The studio was for days when he couldn't go out. But he would walk out on his own, in what was considered then... I mean, we, we, we don't consider Provence to be provincial now, but then it was. Then the painters were based in Paris and might go out into the Normandy or into the landscape irregularly. But, but they had their world in Paris, and he did not. And he was considered eccentric. He looked eccentric. He didn't bother with things. He had great trouble with his father. Um, he, he had had a um, child with a woman, and he had tr- tried to keep that secret for a very long time. You can see that in the letters. He had a very close relationship with the novelist Zola, but he broke that off when Zola put him into a novel sent him the novel and um, he just decided he had enough of that because um, in the novel Zola has the painter hanging himself at the end of the novel and he just thought well he wouldn't be doing that so it's a fascinating life and um, these letters are particularly well edited in this new edition the footnotes are terrific I mean often footnotes get in the way of a book like that but in this new edition the footnotes are really informative and quite opinionated and are clearly written by someone who, who knows the work inside out but also has studied the life and made judgments on it there were many rumours about him and um, for example people always thought that his wife was sort of not very intelligent but there two letters from her in this book that make clear that she was actually quite intelligent. That gives a whole new version of her. With him, especially towards the end, they, they really do give a great picture of a dedicated artist. And it's a very curious and atmospheric book and it's lovely to actually just pick up and breeze through the pages. But one thing that comes out of that book is the importance of friendship. Can you talk to me a little bit about friendship? Well, I think for um, any group of people, having your peer group is really important. It doesn't matter what area you're in, um, even with politicians, you know, and even with um, people in the clergy. So I think with writers and artists, that idea that somebody else is working like this. And where I think especially in the correspondence between him and Zola, you see they're both trying things out and they don't know if they'll work. And they might work artistically, but not with the audience. And they might work with the audience, but not artistically. And they gossip and they have things to say about various people in their world. And it's true in a way with the other artists that he knew but in in some absolute way I think he was a loner and I think he was happiest really with all his paint alone working with nature of course the letters are not written to nature they're written to friends they're written to associates and as he got older as well he became interested in young people who were interested in his work or, or whom he liked and he wrote to them and tried to explain what he was doing. So yes, the idea of friendship is important. In other words, it makes clear that Cézanne was not a complete loner, that he was not completely interested in his own solitude, in his own mind, and that he could be very, very polite and that he could be very gracious, that, that, that there is something stylish about some of the letters. And you identify with somebody like Cézanne in your own life? Ah, yeah, I think that that idea um, of just going back into sort of neutral space and working alone and being dedicated to that for anyone who's anyone who works is important and I think he's a great example of it. He's also a great example to anyone whose work is not doesn't seem to be going well in relation to sort of public taste that um, he really didn't care about that. He really, really went ahead with what he was doing and I mean he was very, very brave in that regard. He's a great example I think to anyone who wants to do something new in fiction or new in poetry or new in art. You should stick to it and see where it takes you because um, with Cezanne at the end of his 
his life, he suddenly became almost a myth in Paris, this great figure. Everybody was trying to buy his work at the end of his life. People made a lot of money from his work because they bought it very cheaply and sold it later on. I mean, his life is a triumph in the end, but as the letters make clear, it often doesn't seem like that. Well, that's it for Talking Books for me this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Now, don't forget, if you want to get in contact with the show, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. Or if you've missed any of our programmes, don't worry, they're all podcasted on the Newstalk website. So check out our programme page at www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. There's loads of podcasts up there to keep you going and, I hope, entertained. And by the way, I'm really enjoying getting your emails. It's lovely to get your views and what you like and what you don't like. So keep the emails coming in. It means a lot. Now, just to let you know, this week Dublin is going to go all a flurry with books as the Dublin Books Festival kicks off on Thursday the 14th of November until Sunday the 17th. The programme is hugely varied, including everything from book clubs, book launches, history, business, cooking, children's and school books events and lots, lots more. Now, the good news is the majority of the events are free. So if you like more details, why don't you go to www.dublinbooksfestival.com. The majority of the events in the festival will take place in Smock Alley Theatre, which is right in the heart of the city centre, just near Temple Bar. And also there's going to be some events in the National Library, in the Gutter Bookshop, the Irish Writing Centre, Fighting Words, Pier Street Library and other library spaces in town. Now, if you can't get up to Dublin this week, don't worry. Next week, I'll be bringing you lots of interesting highlights from the festival. Well, before I go, I'd like to thank Valerie Jordan, who helped out on research, and the very lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you get out of your bed? Enjoy a nice, slow, slow breakfast. Put on some warm clothes and get out in the fresh air. It'll do you the world of good. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.